News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the IT strategy for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC? How is it modernizing its IT systems and infrastructure? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Sylvia Burns, Chief Information Officer at the FDIC. Sylvia, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we delve into specific initiatives, I'd like for you to give us an overview of the history and mission of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, also known as FDIC. So um, the FDIC was established in 1933, and the mission of the FDIC is really to promote financial stability in the U.S. financial system. So it's to give confidence and trust in um, all the players in the system so that people feel confident in um, banks and, and financial institutions and leaving their money in banks, saving and all this kind of stuff. So fundamentally, that is the mission of the FDIC. So specifically how the FDIC does that, so Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, it provides insurance to uh, the deposits in the vast majority of banks that you have across the country. That's to give people who are savers um, just the knowledge that your money is safe in this bank. Um, because if something bad were to happen, your deposits are insured up to a certain amount. And the way the FDIC works, it works as part of a bigger federal financial community where um, there are a few things um, that happens there. One big thing is like we have bank examiners. Basically, the FDIC shares responsibility with uh, state chartered banks to supervise them, what they call supervise, which is really having bank examiners show up at the banks on some regular basis and just check the safety and soundness of the bank. The one thing that is very unique to what the FDIC does is that it does what we call resolutions and receiverships of failed banks. So most recently, um, during the financial crisis in 2008 to like maybe 2013, there were many banks that hit a rough time and there were many bank failures. It's irrespective of size, right? FDIC is unique in the federal government in that it will basically go in and handle a resolution receivership of any fill bank. So that could be the gigantic ones. It could be small, small ones. But And the big thing that they do is they want to make sure that the, the bank, the account holders get their money. And then also anybody who is owed money that they also get paid. Um, and I think the FDIC has a pretty great track record in terms of returning money to people who have claims or the depositors. And so obviously we have an insurance and research uh, division as well that actually helps us to figure out what should the premiums be for the banks based on risk, right? And they do research as well. So 
that's kind of like the FDIC kind of in a nutshell. And then of course we have all the supporting organizations like mine that sustain um, the organization's ability to conduct its mission. IT is very important to it. I want to understand as a follow-up, um, given the, the important mission and, and the different things that you do that you've illustrated for FDIC, could you tell us more about your office and how it's organized? And, and as you're just alluding to, how does it support the overall mission of the depart- of the agency? Sure. So um, I would say, first of all, I'll go into, we basically provide the day-to-day IT support for the FDIC. So the people who need their laptops, connectivity, software to do their work, my organization is is the organization that's responsible for that. We also support the mission with um, how they, whatever they need to do to conduct their business. So if you're talking about um, supervision or resolutions and receiverships, um, my organization also helps to either build or acquire or configure applications for the business that enable them to do their mission. And in some cases that involves um, interfacing with what we call the regulated institutions, the banks, where they have to like provide us data as part of like the processes we go through. So it's basically all, all the IT, the, our mission areas need to do their work. We're divided up in, in my organization, the CIO organization, I have um, the chief information security officer who reports directly to me. I have my my deputy CIO, and I'm actually hoping in the near future to actually have a deputy CIO for management and a deputy CIO for technology. And then I have a chief data officer. So um, our deputy CIO for technology, basically who would also be our chief technology officer, um, has the vast majority of, I get, I would say, all of the moving parts for actually delivering IT. So that would include um, kind of the strategy and architecture components of it. Um, it would include development, project and program management, and um, everything that we need to provide as a service in the infrastructure. So underneath that, all it has all sorts of moving parts underneath that, but at a high level, you know, that's how we're organized. The WCIO for management basically would have all the administrative functions. So like uh, we do a lot of contracting. So that area, helping to manage our budget, um, our workforce, uh, and then of course, audits and internal controls, a very important area for us. So that's how we're organized. With that kind of a portfolio, Sylvia, I'd like to know more about your specific duties and responsibilities as the chief information officer. And you also have the chief privacy officer role, too. So could you tell us more about those? Absolutely. So not only do I have to ensure that we're delivering services to keep the mission going, um, and they're very dependent on IT um, and automation, but um, I also have to ensure that, you know, that we're complying with the law. The FDIC is subject to FISMA, which is the Federal Information Security Modernization Act. We have to adhere to both the Privacy Act, the EU Government Act of 2002. There's just a whole variety of laws that we have to follow just being a federal government entity. And the FDIC is, we're an independent agency, so there are some things that we're not um, subject to in terms of how in comparison to other cabinet level agencies, 
but there are still many uh, federal laws and regulations, the Paperwork Reduction Act, many uh, laws and regulations that we do have to adhere to. So um, I'm responsible to ensure that how we do IT, that we're doing that. And I, and I would say the other thing we have to do is always, like it's my job to keep my eyes on where is the organization heading? Where is the financial industry heading? What is my organization going to need to be ready to do to support the mission for where the future is going? You know, that's that's all part and parcel of my work, not only for supporting just kind of the internal day-to-day -day work of the organization, but it's also from the mission side. It's to help our mission areas with like whatever they need. We have a, we have actually a wonderful um, group that works in our, um, it's for the corporation, but I think our risk management supervision division actually um, kind of leads the running of this. They have an emerging technology steering committee and um, I and others uh, in my team, we sit on that and we're just, we listen to where is the financial industry headed you know, fintech is a big thing, distributed ledger and blockchain and digital currency, all these things are playing in the environment that we live in. And so um, we have to stay in tune with what's happening so we can um, be responsive. You know, it's a it's a very important role with a big portfolio. Uh, I was wondering, it, it's got to be challenging. So would you tell us more about, say, maybe your three top management challenges that you face and, and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Sure, sure. I would say like one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we are in the midst of an IT modernization. We're trying to drive the modernization of many legacy IT systems that we have in the corporation. And, you know, we're trying to drive to the cloud. And I think that, you know, we're, we're, we fully embrace the cloud smart strategy that the federal government um, has put out. And so we're operating in what we call a bimodal fashion, right? We have new modern technology um, and mostly using um, kind of cloud uh, software as a service or platform as a service. And at the same time, we have a vast majority still of our portfolio that's legacy IT. And so the one of the biggest challenges we have is flipping that, right? We want to really like modernize all that legacy IT because it holds us back and it's not optimal to how it supports the mission. So big challenge of like, how do you take kind of every year, um, the development work that we do, projects, right, initiatives to modernize, to make a dent against, let's say, like the 85% of our portfolio that is really tied up in legacy. We can't just cut off the legacy because for, on a day-to-day -day basis, the people of the FDIC are using this to do their work. Maybe it's in suboptimal fashion, and so we want to modernize. It's more of like we're using about 15% of our portfolio modern, modernized and 85% of our portfolio is that legacy technology that we have to just keep alive so that we're not disrupting the mission. So that is definitely one huge um, challenge that we have um, at the FDIC. And, and the way we're approaching it is that we have the support of the whole organization um, from top down to actually do this strategy, to actually embrace cloud and modernize. You know, we've adopted a number of cloud platforms, as I've mentioned. And so we're working with our mission areas to actually help them rethink how they want to do their business. 
and develop new technologies that are responsive to that vision. It takes time. So it is challenging. It involves change. Um, so I would say that that's another big challenge is change. So moving to the cloud from where we are today, where the vast majority of what we have has been custom developed, resides on premise in our data centers, you know, flipping that and going to the cloud and driving holistic automation of the environment is a huge change for the IT workforce and also potentially with uh, for our mission and business partners. So um, change is a, is, a, is a huge problem. How we're addressing it, I mean, I think we're trying to train people. We're trying to give people plenty of advance notice, have people be part of the process. Um, but even with that, you know, change is hard for people. So it's a challenge. The last thing that I would put on the table, like, because part of the changes that we're trying to make are we're trying to change how we do our work. Um, so we're really fully embracing agile, DevSecOps, product line management. Um, so as we're doing our modernization of systems, we're modernizing ourselves. We're trying to apply, um, and, and, and it's not like agile, DevSecOps, and product line management are like brand new. They're not. They probably have existed for over a decade, but they have not been, to this point, completely embraced and inculcated into how FDIC IT works. And um, that's something that we're also trying to do while we're doing all, you know, modernizing all the, uh, the infrastructure and the IT that we do have around us. And sort of as we're doing this, we're trying to do things in a way where um, we're also adopting concepts that we need to. Like um, I'm a big proponent of zero trust architectures. So as we're doing this, we're trying to do it in a way that we're not building it kind of for the past model from a security perspective that um, you know still leaves us very vulnerable. We're trying to apply things with thinking you know, in a way where it's about zero trust and how do we set that up for the future. So those, those are our, our three big ones. Given your background and also your career, uh, you know, how do you lead uh, as a CIO and what characteristics make one an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with us some of the principles that you follow. Sure. First of all, I would say that I think my the biggest part of my job is to set the vision and the strategic direction for the organization and, and try to get everybody bought into that vision as much as I can. But then the biggest thing that I have to do is create the environment so that everyone in the organization is positioned to succeed um, in helping to fulfill the vision. And while they're doing that, we want to see them grow both professionally and personally and thrive so they can be the best that they can be for not only the benefit of the organization, but for their personal selves. To me, my values are grounded in things that are healthy for the organization's long-term viability. So, you know, I approach things where um, I feel like personally for me, I have to have high self-awareness. I, I ascribe to kind of servant leadership. So um, with that, I, I think it serves me best to not come into the job with a big ego. I feel like I have to be very open and honest um, about myself and with other people if I want to expect the same thing for, from them. And for me, like um, I think it's really important that the energy that I put out to people is not turning them off, right? 
It's one where I'm welcoming them in, that they know that I want to hear them, that I'm open to different perspectives. Because now I truly believe that um, the diversity of perspectives is what gets us the best result. Um, so the other thing I think is I have to be able to take ownership of, uh, of problems and not point fingers because like I have to be the role model, right? If I want people to treat each other well, well, then I have to treat everybody well. So part of that, like in terms of accountability and stuff like that is I think it's very important to take ownership of problems, of mistakes, and not, not be like punitive about it. You know, because most people, they don't make mistakes on purpose. They're accidents, right? They would like to do better, but, you know, stuff happens. We're human. We have to give the space for people to be human, to um, make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, do better, teach others, all this kind of stuff. So I am a believer in extreme ownership. And I try to do that because I feel like if others do that as well, because I'm doing it, like we all make the organization rise as a result. What are the IT priorities for the FDIC? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sylvia Burns, Chief Information Officer at the FDIC. You mentioned previously that one of the biggest parts of your job is to create the IT vision and strategy for your agency. And I was hoping you could um, maybe outline for us that strategy and, and elucidate some of the key strategic priorities you have. Absolutely. Happy to do it. I kind of already have talked about some of them. Fundamentally, and I, I have this as what's my... What's my vision for technology in the future, right? Um, and, and so from that perspective, because there's another aspect about people in the organization. So this is about the technology. I'm really trying to drive us to um, wholesale adoption of the cloud. And I, I realize maybe maybe it's not going to be 100%, but I'm driving as much to 100% as we can because I think the case for uh, leveraging the cloud is very compelling on many fronts. Um, in terms of the capabilities we can offer our um, business partners, our constituents on the outside, um, the fact that there's continuous modernization happening with um, cloud service providers. I don't feel that the government is the place for these kinds of technologies, right? We're not the place where we're building this stuff. 
I think industry does the best at innovating at that level. And I think we're best positioned to consume and interact with with industry to tell them what we need and where we're driving to to help them deliver tools that can help meet our mission better. So adoption of cloud is a big thing. Um, The other thing is um, automation as part of that, right? We have a lot of manual processes um, in my organization today, and it just causes problems um, because, you know, uh, manual processes uh, are prone to error, um, are prone to then causing outages and just things that you don't want to see happen in an IT organization. And the degree to which we can minimize human touch on things, the better we will be in terms of how um, reliable, effective, secure, um, you know, responsive, what our services are, right, to our, our constituents. So cloud, automation. The other thing is um, I, I, I do embrace the concept of um, self-service and um, to some degree, citizen development. And I say that because I don't believe that uh, like kind of the CIO organization, my organization is the central IT organization. This kind of gets into a philosophical thing about the centralized IT organization versus decentralized IT. Um, My personal philosophy is that um, the extremes have deficiencies, right? They have benefits, but they have deficiencies. I think that some balance in the middle is where um, organizations are best served. And so that means that the central organization has to acknowledge that, you know what? Great ideas happen out in the field. And it's logical. That's where they're having to, you know, they have boots on the ground. They have to do the work. And um, sometimes they have to be, have a little ingenuity and innovation in there to figure out how are they going to overcome a problem kind of locally, right? Um, So I feel like kind of the democratization of IT, the ability to have citizen developers kind of working in partnership with my folks, that that is the model for the future. Because, you know, IT just developing um, what it thinks the business wants, I think that that is not a good good model for delivering quality. so, so, so there's that. And then I would say also I've mentioned moving to agile, DevSecOps, product line management, zero trust, always um, kind of controlling, controlling the size of the IT budget. It's insatiable, right? So um, I think we have to be mindful of that because we always, you know, as a CIO, we we're also expected to be business minded. And so um, you can't have runaway costs with IT. On that note, you know, as you're modernizing, you have to decommission stuff. You have to take, I, I, I make this analogy about my closet. Before the pandemic, I used to like to buy clothes and shoes, but the space in my closet can only fit so many clothes and shoes. So I, I had a policy at one point. I was like, something new comes in, something's got to go. It's got to go to go to Salvation Army, whatever goodwill, I got to take something out. It's the same thing in IT. We can't just continue to acquire stuff. As we're modernizing things, we have to very um, deliberately decommission things, which means that you have to fully plan what you're doing end to end so that you can achieve that outcome in the end. 
and take things out of your closet. That's a good point. And I think you kind of alluded to in a little sort of way about some of the specific internal drivers and external trends that have shaped and informed your IT strategy. Perhaps you could dig a little deeper for us there. Sure. Well, so I I mentioned some of this before that, um, you know, FDIC, my organization, all of us, right? We sit in a very dynamic environment where things are changing all the time. The financial sector is changing all the time. You all you have to do is pick up any newspaper, you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, Washington Post, and there's always stories now about what's happening with, uh, you know, the fintechs, right? It's basically companies that have have taken IT innovations to rethink how do you want to how do you want to redo banking, right? The whole thing of PayPal or Venmo or things like this about how you how you get money from one place to the other. I mean, decades ago, nobody even thought that that the idea wasn't even there, right? So um, we live in the financial sector in a very dynamic environment. You know, there's stuff with digital currencies now, so things are changing all the time. Um, and like I said, we have to be cognizant of those things understand where our agency and where the federal government is going so that, you know, basically we can do what we need to do to make our organization successful. And at the same time, I would say that um, we all recognize that those new things um, bring new risks into our system. And I think we also have to be mindful of that. And some of my colleagues in in my um, sister mission divisions and offices, that's largely their jobs. And I, I have a lot of respect for them, you know, when I listen to the conversation with them. But this is about how do how does my organization help the FDIC to adapt to the changing world they find themselves in? Internally, I would say my organization has to be always prepared, ever ready for when is the next big financial crisis. Whenever that happens, we have to be ready because. IT becomes such a big deal when that happens. Um, when you're in a situation with resolutions and receiverships, a lot of the work that goes into that is about taking data in, processing it, having that trigger other actions. And so, you know, we want to make sure that our missions are, and in particular, our division of resolutions and receiverships and our division of complex institutions supervision and risk, those are two big divisions that we have, they would be triggered if there was um, a financial crisis that happened. And depending upon the size of the institution that was failing, either one of them would would, um, have to rise to the occasion. So we say now that we're in peacetime because there is not a financial crisis right now. And during peacetime, it's a perfect time to kind of batten down the hatches and prepare for what could come. I want to say that the last crisis in the you know mid 2000, uh, what is it like 2008 that time frame, when we had the last financial crisis, you know IT systems like what we're trying to build today they didn't exist. I've told myself a story and I think this story is true, but in the last crisis because they had to just contend with um, doing the work to get the mission accomplished people who are just really smart and had initiative and maybe knew a little bit of IT, they just kind of use whatever tools were available to them 
to do work to like um, process on mass data that they needed to um, to go through to be able to do their their jobs. So what happens with that? That's what that's to me. That's why we have a lot of legacy one-off IT systems that aren't necessarily strategic, weren't architected. It's because the organization was responding to a crisis. Now, while we're in peacetime, we have a chance to sit calmly with our mission stakeholders and um, really understand what end-to-end processes look like and help them build automation around that. So I think that's another internal driver to all this. Um, Another thing for me is, as kind of core to everything that we do in my organization is we have to strengthen the foundation, the IT foundation for all of this, taking the time to put in these really advanced technologies that we have at our disposal, putting them in the right way is just so important. I've, I've used the analogy of like, it's like us building the highway, right? You want to have all sorts of vehicles be able to safely ride on this highway and off-ramp and on-ramp as they need to to get to their destination. Um, if we don't put the time, energy, effort, um, investment into ensuring that we build that foundation for the long term, you know, we're, we don't serve the FDIC well. So that, that's another thing that I think is um, important to everything that we're doing in my organization. Yeah. And, and you know, Sylvia, you mentioned a couple of times the the effort around uh, modernization of infrastructure and systems. And as I understand it, you've made a quantum leap from what I understand out of on-prem to cloud using a containerization. Can you tell us more about this journey and your cloud migration efforts. And what are some of the challenges you faced moving to the cloud? Well, um, it's funny that you use the word quantum leap because my my team actually um, came up with the name for the project as being called Quantum Leap. So um, what Quantum Leap is, is, is it's one part of our cloud strategy. So like I said, we're already investing in PaaS and SaaS solutions to help modernize certain systems. We also have our own infrastructure. So we have an on-premise data center in Virginia. We have a backup data center in Texas. And um, you know, ultimately we would like to get those to the cloud. And so um, something that we're doing now, our quantum leap program is basically to set up our infrastructure as a service cloud environment and migrate some of the things that we have some of these legacy systems that we have sitting in our on-premise data centers to actually migrate them, um, containerize them, and migrate them to our new infrastructure as a service environment. Challenges with that. So, so th- this project is not even a project; it's a program. It's multifaceted. There are many moving parts to it. Some of it is just about setting up the base infrastructure. Like I'm talking, this is this is part of the highway that I was talking about. So get, making sure that that is set up properly and that um, right now my team is, um, they're looking at setting up the environment by establishing what are the patterns, what are the repeatable patterns that we see in the environment that allow us to build it kind of like build once, use many times concept. So figuring that out, getting kind of your base um, tier zero capabilities put in there after which you can start putting in some more of the advanced technologies. All that is part of it. 
obviously the process of successfully containerizing the legacy application, moving it to the cloud environment, and ensuring that you don't lose anything in terms of the data exchanges that need to happen with that now containerized system in the cloud and other systems that that system has to integrate with, that's a complexity that has to be very carefully thought through. So we have a, um, as part of Quantum Leap, we have a data orchestration and integration effort going along with that so that we're looking at the data end of it and many other things. Something that we're trying to do as part of our Quantum Leap program is also to establish a cloud data management and analytics environment um, in, in that environment. And that's because like FDIC is a very data-oriented organization. It's all about the data at FDIC. There's the need for advanced analytical tools, the ability to spin up or down an environment so that you know, whatever analytical effort needs to happen can happen freely by the people who need to do it, the researchers. Um, so that's part of what we're all setting up. But like I said, we have to do all the right things to plan and build the highway for all the things that we want to use it for over the next few decades. And from, from there, you know, then it'll be in use, it'll be solid and secure. And that's really important. I mean, the, the, the whole notion of security. But before we get into the, the, the talking about that, I want to talk about automation as a major goal and and how you're leveraging automation. Maybe you could dig a little deeper and applying it to DevSecOps. How are you doing that? Yeah, I mean, so um, a lot of what they're setting up in our new infrastructure as a service environment, it is automation. So, so like that is part of the basic foundation that is getting put in place today, that it's not that somebody, a system administrator has to do X, Y, or Z function and touch stuff, but you set it up so it's it's done automatically, obviously to reduce human error, increase quality, speed, performance, even security. So all that stuff is part of um, the base work that's happening in setting up the environment. And the same thing, you know, when we implement a new cloud platform, the same kind of work needs to happen to ensure that you're maximizing what the tools can give you. The other thing we have going on, I, I mentioned that we're moving to Agile DevSecOps product line management. And we have a wonderful group of people in our development team that actually um, is responsible for our DevSecOps tool chain or tool chains, right? And uh, basically continuous integration, continuous delivery CICD pipeline. So that is very much about automation so that when people are actually doing development, that it's highly automated, that security is built in. You basically, minimal touch, like I'm saying, and also more speedy development. So all those things are happening kind of in the automation world at FDIC. How is FDIC implementing its zero trust security architecture? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. 
Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sylvia Burns, Chief Information Officer at the FDIC. Now I'd like to talk about the security aspect and the cyber attack profile since everybody's gone remote. It has increased exponentially. I'm wondering, given the evolving nature of the cyber, of cyber threats, could you elaborate on your efforts to enhance IT security across your enterprise um, institutionalizing appropriate policies and maybe offering new cyber training programs? Sure. Well, so like with cybersecurity, I hope everybody knows that this is a game of never ending vigilance. Uh, you can, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You can't predict it. So it means that you have to have people who are smart, who are on top of it all the time. And um, I, I have to say that we have an excellent team who does stay on top of this. We have um, folks in our security operations center and also our IT infrastructure operations who are just constantly monitoring things. We're lucky to be part of the federal community where we are um, plugged into DHS and CISA and the um, activities there. You know, they give us a heads up about when they see um, new vulnerabilities pop up that may not be like just one off may not come to our attention just like that, but there's a team of people at DHS whose job it is to um, keep their eyes on that and make sure the whole federal community is aware and doing what they need to do. So I'm extremely grateful for that group and um, we're very plugged into that. That's part of the whole vigilance and watching how the ball is moving, watching um, what new thing is happening and just staying on top of it. I don't know that there's, there's no silver bullet there's no um, something that you can do to ensure that you're going to be completely okay. It, it's never like that in this area. Part of this thing also, just like at a very basic level, cybersecurity and privacy are just foundational, fundamental, and central to everything we do in IT at the FDIC. And we have fully adopted NIST risk management framework. So part of like keeping ourselves in good stead is making sure all the systems that we have, that we really understand what we've got in our environment, things have been properly assessed and authorized, that we have the right controls in the environment, that we are cognizant of the weaknesses and are working towards shoring those up as, as quickly as we can. So that, that's just basic, right? We, you have to start with that. The other thing is there is an educational part um, because it's it's not just like intuitive, right? People don't just understand um, naturally like why you have to do all these things. And a lot of people think, oh, it's just a big headache, right? To me, it's not just about compliance and checking a box. All the things we have to do around security and privacy is really about how do we do good IT? And some of that is 
training our own people as well as our mission partners about why does this matter to them? Maybe you didn't think about it before, but let's put this on your radar now because this is really important. You, and you don't want to have these discussions at a point where, where you're in a crisis because there's been a breach and you're in a terrible situation. It's better for us to know the stuff in advance, like be educated, do the right things so that we could be preventative and like, you know, not having bad things happen. The other thing is we just, you know, I think all agencies had to submit to OMB their zero trust implementation strategies. And um, we submitted ours as well. And I think that that's part of um, establishing, I hope, a new paradigm for how we approach cybersecurity in our operational environment um, versus um, old ways that we've been doing things that have left us vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, I wanted that was my next question was around zero trust, and you you were a leading proponent, as I understand it. And I'm I'm wondering if you could tell us more a little bit more about what you're doing at FDIC around that, and and what lessons did you bring from your work when you were at Air Force at DISA? Oh yeah, well, so um, I'll actually probably more talk about like I've um. Um, as part of the interagency zero trust steering group that, that I have led since probably 2018, 2019, we, we did a lot of work with DOD, but, but maybe what I'll do is I'll start and I'll tell you my story from when I was the CIO at the department of the interior, because that's what started my, my journey on zero trust. You may know that, uh, the department of the interior was part of the OPM breach. There was, there were, two breaches that were um, of, of note um, in the 2015 period. Uh, one, of them, one of them, which was smaller, DOI was involved in. And um, basically coming out of that situation, I asked my team, I asked my cybersecurity guys, I was like, you guys, how do we change the game? If we keep doing the same thing that we've been doing, this could happen again. So tell me something different that I haven't heard. And um, some of my guys had gone to the RSA conference that year and they came back and they said, and it's funny because we had been talking about this in another forum in 2010. So five years before we were kind of having this conversation, but in 2015, um, some of my guys came back when I asked that question and they said, well, you know, we were, we were listening to Google's Beyond Core presentation. And that is what we think is the different way of how we do this. And that whole thing was about how do you get out of kind of the traditional kill chain and, and really change the paradigm from the castle and moat method of, of protecting your IT environment to something very different. So in 2018, it was May, 2018. So I was still at Interior at that time. Um, my CTO and I, we actually presented to the federal CIO council a case for how, why the federal government should be adopting uh, zero trust architectures. And the CIOs received this very positively. And they, there was like a lot of discussion around the room about, yes, we need to go in this different direction. And so that was the beginning of it. And following that, basically the CIO council has a relationship with an organization called ACT-IAC. Um, and, and I felt that that it was important. I had talked to my CTO about this, about, you know, this can't just be a government thing. This has to be a thing between government and industry, 
because government is going to need products from industry to consume to help us put this kind of zero trust architecture in place. So um, ACT-IACT actually was early on in 2018 um, in conversations with us. Um, we had a whole bunch of demonstrations of technologies from their various members that they had. They did a white paper in 2018. Um, and, it, and in 2018, I also engaged NIST along with um, colleagues from OMB and DHS to bring this conversation to, to them. So we work with people at the NCCOE at NIST. And um, basically that's where we started this interagency steering group. You know, DOD was talking to us at the time about um, something that they were on a quest to do, um, something called continuous multi-factor authentication. And we met up with them a few times in 2018 and 2019, um, just to even talk at a basic level. At, we were at the NCCOE at NIST just about what does zero trust mean? Let, let's all get on the same page about what are we talking about? And that whole conversation with that group led to um, that group supporting NIST in developing NIST special publication 800-207, which they formally released the summer of 2020. Um, so that was a great accomplishment. And then from there, I think um, the agencies all gravitate now to that document as basically, um, you know, a foundation for how of understanding for how do what is a zero trust architecture? What are the main components of it? In addition to that, you know, OMB has put out their zero trust strategy, and DHS has their zero trust maturity assessment. These all work together, right? We're one federal government, so these are all consistent with each other. In terms of FDIC and my fellow uh, federal agencies, I think the pillars that were established um, by OMB and DHS um, about what are the main moving parts of a zero trust architecture, um, there are basically five, which is identity, assets, applications, network, and data. Like you, you have to do things around each one of those pillars um, and bring them all together to actually get a zero trust architecture. Our FDIC zero trust implementation strategy basically does that. It goes to each one of those and you know, OMB basically set it up for agencies to respond in that way and focus on those areas. So that's what we did. And um, honestly, like, I feel like we benefited from the fact that I'm so heavily um, involved with the interagency group because we're leveraging what we learn from other agencies that seem very compelling. We actually uh, just hired one of the, the leads from Air Force Zero, Zero Trust Program who's helping us to chart our path forward on Zero Trust. But it, let me also say that it's a very complicated thing to do. It's not something that you can say you'll get done in a year. These things are very complicated and it will take time to get this right. But, you know, I'm a believer in playing the long game. So, uh, you know, you start down the journey, you focus on what you need to do, you keep doing it. At some point, you'll be in a much better place than you ever were. And so it just, you know, keep focused and do it. Um, I want to know how has the COVID pandemic impacted how your agency operates and how have you embraced, you know, e-signature technology during this this time? What 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 lessons have you learned? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think the at the FDIC, um, you know, before the uh, pandemic, I don't think as many people worked remotely. And I think the big lesson for FDIC was probably that it could successfully conduct its mission um, in a remote work environment. There were a few bank closings during the pandemic, and the leader of that division who um, who takes care of that, she basically kind of almost like redesigned how they do resolutions and receiverships kind of in a place where you don't want to have 60, 70 people descend on a location. So she sent more of like small teams of maybe less than 10 people on site when typically there would have been 60. And the 60 were kind of in the back office, right? Working remotely from home or wherever, kind of doing their, their work behind the scenes. So the pandemic basically showed the organization, it, I mean, it challenged the organization to do its mission in a different way. I think the same thing for the bank exams. I think it was tougher for folks who had to do bank exams because there's definitely a benefit from being on site for those, from what I understand. And there are even some statutory requirements that require our examiners to actually be on site at the bank. I want to say they got through. It was tougher for them though, right? Because I've heard that um, it took like longer. They were less effective and it took longer to conduct bank exams remotely. I'm sure that um, getting over this and getting back into a return to office mode is going to help them. So I would just say like, that using technology, it played a huge role in keeping us going. People learned how to use the tools very quickly. We had deployed, um, you know, we we use uh, Office 365 at FDIC. And in 2019, I want to say it was December, we had deployed the tool MS Teams. And um, we were talking at that time about how are we going to train everybody to use this tool? You know, not everybody, like, it's going to be a little bit like pulling teeth. Well, then, you know, March 16th, we all went, went on mandatory telework. Our chairman announced, you know, that um, we would not be working from the offices anymore. And everybody headed home and had their laptops and their PIV cards and their iPhones and whatever. And um, they had to open up their computers and learn how to get in a meeting using Teams. And, and getting onto the VPN and, and doing it. And you want to know what? About two weeks, it was about two weeks maybe of a little bit of bumpiness because maybe somebody left their PIV card in the office or somebody, you know, the bandwidth was lousy at home. But I, would, I want to tell you that within a two-week time frame, the FDIC flipped over from being a largely on-site working organization to 100% virtual. Um, so the technology was huge. Digital signatures was a big thing as part of all that. And I would say it was the first probably four months that we were contending with that. So we had already had, um, you know, we use Adobe and we do PDFs. And um, some of it was we did some videos about how do you do a digital signature using your Adobe software? And so um, people quickly learned how to do that and sign internal documents electronically using Adobe PDFs. For external signatures, we were using a tool called DocuSign. And um, I think the interesting thing about that, there are certain documents that if you need to sign, either it was related to contracts or activities related to resolutions and receiverships, 
there is a need for external signatures. So, so we adopted tools like that, which have been um, fairly effective. Some of the interesting things that happened around digital signatures was the dispelling of myth. And there, I would say that there were a number of, of uh, people who believed that certain documents needed to be signed. And ultimately, when we consulted with our lawyers, they basically confirmed that a signature was not legally required on some of those documents. So there was a huge myth buster. And um, basically, they, you know, people learned that if you email a document like that from an FDIC email account, that's what makes the document official. It doesn't need a signature. So um, I, would, I would say we got through that that way. But some of it was, you know, dispelling myths of things that people thought, you know, they had to do that weren't just weren't true. That's great. You know, I was wondering, given all the work that you're doing, how have you sought to create a culture of innovation and challenging old ways of doing business, re-energizing IT, and creating a sense of urgency that means doing IT better, cheaper, and faster? Um, I mean, I would just say that um, I, I don't feel like we have a problem about the creating this sense of urgency. Because I feel like our mission, they'd so desperately want these new things and they want it yesterday. So we're, we're almost dealing with the opposite, where it's about managing our capacity so that we can keep up with demand for good or bad. I think that's the situation that we're in. I think people, people really want these new tools. So the urgency is there. The desire is there. I think for us, some of the challenge is more about not embarking on things as one-offs and being more strategic about what we do undertake. And then it is it is more for us about managing our capacity. So we're prioritizing the most urgent needs up top and um, putting our resources against that. Sylvia, given your background, where you, you know, your your career, how has the role of chief information officer evolved in government agencies? And and to your mind, what what are the characteristics that makes one a successful CIO? Um, you know, like in terms of the evolution of the role, I would say that maybe at some time in the past, people um, just thought about it as it's like what maybe people would think about the kind of director of IT, meaning more of the, the people who are going to provide you your laptop and connectivity and, um, you know, be have people at the help desk to help you through problems. Um, and I would say that it's definitely evolved into more of a strategic role where I want to say, if, if you're successful, you will be engaged with the business because the business will see you as being integral to solving their problems kind of long-term. Um, and I think it's gone from maybe just being much more uh, technical to being um, kind of like becoming a business partner and strategic helping your your uh, mission areas, like understand what they're going through and helping them think through what the future could look like. I think that that's probably how it's changed the most over time. That's probably over decades. Um, and what was the second part of your question? It was uh, the characteristics of a successful CIO. Yeah, I mean, I think that to me, it's about being approachable, um, be plain talking, um, not not having that relationship with your mission partners, the leadership in the mission, those are absolutely key to being successful. 
you can't get you can't succeed without the support of so many around you, um, especially the mission people. Um, if you lose them, you lose everything. So having them side by side with you and listening to each other, learning from each other, getting better together, that that I think is really important. Well, what advice would you give someone, Sylvia, who's thinking about a career in public service? Yeah, I would say um, I, I am thankful that I'm in public service. I feel passionate about it. I feel that um, anybody in their career, they need to do something that they are passionate and inspired about from a mission perspective. Your love of that can help you through the toughest of times. And it, it can help you also be inspired and um, think about different ways of how to solve problems. I think the love of whatever you're doing is really important. And then the other thing is you have people have to be in it for the long haul, especially in the government. The federal government is very complex. It wasn't built in a day and you typically can't make huge change in a day. You have to kind of like be tough and be able to be persistent, not give up. I mean, I think it helps, pays to have a good vision, a plan, and um, just like don't give up, right? Just keep on going at it and you'd be surprised at um, how many other people might follow you. And, you know, so you bring people along the way who help lighten your load. You know, that's another key thing is like, you can't solve problems, big problems, especially, you can't solve them alone. It's important to know that, know when you need help and don't be afraid to ask for it. And then the last thing I would just say is like, it's to stay accountable. Um, constantly ask yourself what you're delivering, what you're doing that has value to anybody. You know, most importantly, the public, you know, your agency's constituents, the taxpayer, and then, you know, focus on what's most important and measure things where you can measure what you can, because really what you measure does get watched and it does get done. Sylvia, I want to thank you for your time today, but most importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Sylvia Burns, Chief Information Officer at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. 
We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.